Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And since back to school time is happening, we are going to talk about fraternities because way back when in the podcast, we did an episode on sororities, which if you haven't heard it, you can find it at stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. And so many years later, it's high time to talk about fraternities. So first, let's kick things off with a little bit of fraternity history to figure out how these Greek houses came to be. And for this, we are referencing a lot from Nicholas Syretz, the company he keeps, which is a history of white fraternities in particular. And so he talks about how the earliest U.S. colleges were founded in the 17th century in New England, specifically to educate men for the ministry. And as a result, and also because of some other factors, just the fact that you're living in the 17th century in New England, college wasn't exactly a fun place to go. There was not that list of, you know, the annual list of party schools. It was mostly a recitation and uh, a lot of moralizing and very strict living habits. Powdered wigs. Some powdered wigs, yes. And prior to fraternities, college literary societies were really the social hubs. Yeah, there were usually two at each college, and members would compete for the new freshmen. And early fraternities actually retained this whole tradition of oratory, recitation, and the presentation of essays. And this might sound familiar if you are familiar with Phi Beta Kappa, which was the first Greek letter society founded in 1776 at the College of William and Mary. Phi Beta Kappa was and still is a literary society and a place for intellectual debate. Now, Phi Beta Kappa is, like you said, a literary society, not a fraternity in the social sense that we think of. But the secrecy and rituals that we associate with the social fraternities with the Sigma Alpha Epsilons at all began with Phi Beta Kappa. So fast forward from 1776 to 1825, when you have five seniors at Union College who had been members of an organized military company that had then been dissolved, they got together and decided to form a society for literary and social purposes. And they called it the Kappa Alpha Society. Mm. And within two years, two more fraternities had started up at the college, Sigma Phi and Delta Phi. And so, but what is the deal with this whole Greek thing? Why, why do they even call fraternities and sororities by Greek names and, well, Greek letters? There was this whole new national interest in Greek as opposed to Roman culture as a model for the emerging citizenry. And fraternities, as Syrat talks about in the company he keeps, really provided autonomy specifically from overbearing faculty. And these activities offered a break from just that monotony of college life, which even at that time that Kappa Alpha was founded, were still ministerial oriented. Um, and also, of course, it provided companionship. Um, and this is important for this time, considering how as society is changing, even as we get into the mid 19th century, fathers of these guys, usually white and upper class, who could afford to send their sons off to college rather than keeping them at home to work, 
fathers couldn't necessarily hook their sons up with land because land was becoming more scarce and they didn't have as quick of an entree into social networks that would automatically get them a job. And wasn't it great that they founded fraternities because now that's a lot of what it is once you get into the professional world. Yeah, this whole discussion about like 1700s and 1800s makes me think of my ancestor, George Chamberlain. He's like my great, 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 great uncle. He actually was part of a group of guys who tried to save the life of Harriet Beecher Stowe's nephew at Dartmouth. They all went to Dartmouth. And anyway, his his sister who survived him when he was killed in the Civil War compiled all of his letters home from college and during the war and everything. And his accounts of just like, it is so boring. I am so bored. I don't want to go to class. Please send me more books. And then he developed eye problems because he was reading so much at night. And he's like, my eyes are failing me. I'm sure he didn't talk like that. But anyway, I'm just like picturing my my grand uncle and his mustache at college at Dartmouth. Reading by candlelight. Yeah. Yeah. College was no fun. And so it's n- not so surprising that fraternities spread like wildfire after Kappa Alpha was founded. So by the time the Civil War breaks out, there were 22 different fraternities with 299 chapters at 71 colleges in 25 states. And remember, at this time, College enrollment, again, limited to white upper class men and a lot of white fraternities specifically excluded non-white, non-Protestant groups, including Jews, Catholics, blacks and poor students. And it wasn't until after World War II with the civil rights movement that white frats really began to integrate on a more consistent basis. Right. Yeah. It wasn't until 1906 that the first black Greek letter organization was founded. It's Alpha Phi Alpha at Cornell. And you have to keep in mind the context of the time, because only a few years prior in 1896, you had the Plessy versus Ferguson ruling, which basically upheld segregation by saying that separate but equal was okay. And these Cornell students at the time didn't even have access to student housing, university public facilities, organized athletics or the existing white social groups. So they had to carve out their own space. Yeah. And the founding of black Greek letter organizations, um, as they're referred to, it stands in such contrast to white fraternities, which are often founded on the basis of exclusion, whereas mm-hmm. black fraternities were more founded on the basis of inclusion. Uh, if you look at the charters of black fraternities, you don't have those exclusionary, like no Jews allowed bylaws written into it in the same way that some white fraternities had. And so some of the motivations for organizing Alpha Phi Alpha and the, and the earliest black Greek letter organizations um, were two main things. The tradition of, quote, organizing for the good of the race as modeled by their parents' generation and those before them, because you got to remember, this is in 1906 that Alpha Phi Alpha was founded, and so their parents and their grandparents would likely have been involved in the abolition movement. So, for instance, they would have been following in the example of Prince Hall and Richard Allen, who established their own Masonic lodge and church a century prior since African-Americans were excluded from the white establishment. Essentially, they were like, well, you know what, if... 
we aren't allowed into these groups, then we will organize on our own and uplift ourselves. Yeah. So the whole issue of, of racial pride was definitely strongly tied into these early organizations and the idea of service. So helping helping their own community as well. Yeah, and so by 1930, you have the founding of the National Panhellenic Council for the Divine Nine, and the Divine Nine refers to the first five black fraternities and the first four black sororities. So in in a similar way as you see that the quick growth of traditionally white fraternities, there is also quick growth uh, among black Greek letter organizations as well. Yeah, because, I mean, these are support whatever kind of support these are support type organizations you know where you're you're banding together with people who are like you and you're helping lift each other up well and one of the things that that a scholar pointed out about the founding of those groups is that it was literally a tool of survival yeah. for those earliest black students at Cornell and other colleges that were admitting black students at the time because they were facing so much overwhelming discrimination. Absolutely. And, you know, so when you think back to very, very early white fraternities, you think of like people like my great uncle who, you know, were incredibly bored at Dartmouth. Really kind of white fraternities have actually always been trouble. They've always sort of been a thorn in the side of school administrators. And this didn't start with Animal House, which BT Dubs was inspired by fraternities at Dartmouth. Yeah, between 1776 and 1860, Nicholas Syrett points out that not one of the New England colleges was without some form of revolt. You had situations where students, male students, because it was really only guys in college at the time, male students were physically attacking faculty members because they were essentially revolting against these strict standards that the colleges were trying to enforce and saying, like, no, we, we're, we're not going to deal with this. And college administrators weren't huge fans of fraternities because uh, they a lot of them deliberately flouted college rules that were banning them. And so they became an early means by which students were asserting their independence and things like hazing, defying the rules and, of course, being exclusionary happened from the get go. I mean, even if you look in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, you have freshman students being forced by older fraternity members to carry their books around campus or they would one common hazing prank they would pull would be smoking freshmen out of their rooms. They would essentially like uh, lock their doors from the outside, I guess, and then put like light smoke under the door so that they would have to figure out how to get out of their room somehow. Hmm. Well, so hazing is still common, obviously, which we'll talk about. But one thing that's not as common anymore is traditions like glee club style singing and group crooning to woo women on campus. Yeah, this is one highlight among what we typically think of in our more modern Animal House era of fraternities with, that includes a lot of extreme hazing and uh, drinking to excess. But if you look at the golden era, perhaps, would you call it the golden era? I don't know, of fraternities. There was a lot of there was some cheese factor to it um, where they would go around and, and sing, which reminds me of the movie Pitch Perfect in which you have the the glee clubs out on campus 
singing to impress women. Mm-hmm. And we'd laugh at that now, but <laughs> old school frat boys, that is what they would do. Well, yeah, there was one article that spoke with a guy who had been in a fraternity in the 50s, I think, and who was saying that, you know, it just wasn't like that. You know, I wore a suit and tie to dinner and I asked women out on dates and, yeah. and things like that. Well, and they did in those earlier days to, to still have a focus, a, a stronger focus on the the literary tradition, on oratory, on decorum and on crooning. <laughs> That's right. Now, black fraternities also took on the singing tradition as well, but they also stepped it up a notch, and that is a bit of a pun, uh, because particularly in the 50s and 60s, you have the rise of doo-wop groups who are not only singing songs, but they're also doing some choreographed moves along with it. And so black fraternity members started integrating dance into their on-campus singing, which then evolved into the stepping tradition that you see thriving on campuses today, which if you haven't been to a step show, just you can YouTube it. You should. It's definitely worth watching because essentially it's um, using your body as a rhythm instrument. Is that a weird way of explaining it? No, it's it's fascinating. It's awesome. It's incredible that they can do this. I have no rhythm, so... I would not be able to participate. But now we have to move away from just the, the glory days of crooning and, and well, stepping still happens, but moving into the discussion on contemporary fraternities. This is where the conversation gets a little bit dicier because, as we mentioned, fraternities have historically been sort of thorns in the sides of college administrators. Watch any comedy from the 80s about fraternity members, and you'll see it in action. Because as we mentioned, fraternities have historically been thorns in the sides of college administrators. And while, yes, let us go ahead and acknowledge that fraternities do service projects to enrich their communities, and they are, you know, focused on helping guys, you know, succeed academically and network to get jobs outside of college, there are some problematic issues, not surprisingly, with fraternities. But first, let's just talk about the structure of contemporary frats. Right. So in 1992, four fraternities created the Fraternity Risk Management Trust. And this this had a lot to do with insurance, right? Like dealing with the actual physical risks that came with being in a fraternity. And now, nowadays, 32 fraternities belong to the trust. You also have the North American Interfraternity Conference, which I've seen described as bipartisan, which is very telling because, as we'll talk about, fraternities and sororities have a lot of pull in Congress and whatnot. But it counts 74 national and international fraternities as members, comprising 325,000 individuals. Yeah, there's not actually a clearinghouse for fraternity statistics. There's nobody who's going to tell you down to the number how many fraternity members there are um, because they don't operate within the school structure. Fraternities essentially are part of a giant or not giant necessarily, but they're part of a corporation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there are plenty of schools out there who do not have fraternities or have gotten rid of them or replaced them with co-ed social house groups. There are schools like Notre Dame, Rice, and Vassar who have no Greek system. 
uh, schools like Brandis Harvard and Georgetown as well. There are schools that have off-campus fraternities and schools that just simply don't recognize them whatsoever. And while I wish that we could spend the rest of this podcast extolling the virtues of fraternities, because there are plenty um, there. If you talk to guys who have been in fraternities, they, I'm sure, all have like hilarious stories to tell and talk about the bonds of brotherhood and the friendships that they have forged and how they might have helped them out academically or professionally. But unfortunately, when you talk about fraternities today, what you're typically talking about, first off, is issues of drinking because sororities and sorority houses are almost always dry. You don't uh, proper sorority women do not drink in their house. Well, at least, you know, openly. Um, but that means that the a lot of the drinking happens over at fraternities. And part of why that shift happened was because in 1984, the National Minimum Drinking Age Act pushed partying to frat houses because it raised the drinking age from across the nation from 18 to 21. So where are freshmen going to drink if they can't go to a bar, if they don't have a fake ID? Right. They're going to go to the house. Well, it's funny that well, it's not funny, but it's funny that there's this risk management policy that was drafted in the mid 1980s that basically dictated how drinking is supposed to happen or not happen, how it's supposed to be handled in fraternity houses. But it essentially doesn't it didn't really stick. Uh, and, you know, there's all these rules and guidelines for how it's supposed to happen. But, I mean, I, I can't say that it really has an effect. Yeah. I mean, it, anyone from the North American Interfraternity Conference who is listening to this podcast right now would quickly write us and say that absolutely this risk management policy is very much in effect because these are the rules by which fraternity members can drink in a house. And it involves students who are 21 and up being allowed to bring at most a six pack of beer or a four pack of wine coolers that they then will, uh, when, when they arrive at the house, they have to go to a sober checkpoint and talk to a sober monitor. And the sober monitor will ask the person if he's been drinking. And if so, he has to hand over his ID. And then he also gets a wristband for that six pack. The six pack is then taken from him and put, I guess, into a magical refrigerator. And then they can go have their fun and he can retrieve via sober checkpoint one of his beers you know, as he needs to refill until his six pack is gone and then the party's over. Well, guess what? That probably never happens because those sober monitors are also fraternity brothers and fraternity brothers, probably a lot of times when they want to have a party, um, they're, they're going to bring more than a six pack. Yeah. And so, We, you know, there are a lot of depressing statistics around drinking and fraternities. For instance, since 2005, 59 students have died in incidents involving fraternities, about half of them being alcohol related. It's, it's a big deal. And a 2001 study coined the term Greek effect to denote the strong correlation between fraternity affiliation and drinking. And it's not just limited to fraternities. There is just as much research on the connections between drinking and sorority members as well. But a lot of times the extent of the drinking 
is even more severe for guys with frat affiliations. And this is just a quote from a 2009 study that really drives home how much of an issue this is. Quote, virtually every study of drinking in college shows fraternity members tend to drink more heavily and more frequently and to have more alcohol-related problems than their fellow students. Virtually every study. And folks, I can tell you from researching for this episode, there are a lot of studies. And when it comes to hallmarks of fraternity life, of course, there's the drinking, but there's also the issue of hazing. Well, so first of all, we should say that hazing is illegal in 44 states. And no, it is not limited to fraternities. Hazing happens in a lot of different types of groups on college campuses, whether you're an athlete, et cetera, et cetera. But we should point out instances like in 2014, a University of Tennessee fraternity was suspended for making pledges pour hot sauce on their penises. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that happens. And I think it's it's almost laughable to think of guys being told to pour hot sauce on their penises and then actually doing it. Um, and I think a lot of fraternity members defend this kind of hazing because they had to do it and it bonds them together and it gives them stories to tell. But there are also been instances of life-threatening hazing, such as, and I don't have the college or the frat in front of me, but there was an incident of guys being made to stand naked in trash cans filled with ice. Like, that can that can kill you. And people have died. Uh, as of March 2014, Sigma Alpha Epsilon, dubbed by Bloomberg News, the deadliest frat, ended up banning pledging altogether because of nine fatalities that had happened across its fraternity chapters in recent years, some of which were related to hazing. Because along with this kind of hazing behavior of, you know, from pouring hot sauce on your scrotum to having to stand naked in a thing of ice water, a lot of this is happening while drinking is going on. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, if you're already engaging in risky behavior, douse it in some Jack Daniels and you have a recipe in some cases for death. Yeah. And and what's kind of crazy to me is that there's this group that actively lobbies against legislation that would make it make hazing penalties even worse. They're called frat pack, which Whatever, but they're a political action committee who actively lobbies the nearly 40 senators and more than 100 House of Representative members who were in fraternities and sororities to fend off this anti-hazing and anti-Greek or what they think of as anti-Greek legislation. Yeah, I mean, it's so common for our politicians to have had some kind of Greek association. Frat Pack is pretty successful in their lobbying because once people are in fraternities and sororities, they do tend to have very strong ties and just basic fondness for the Greek system. And it helps, too, that Frat Pack, for instance, has hundreds of thousands of dollars at its disposal that it has donated to Greek-friendly politicians. So while there, I don't think there's any fraternity out there that would endorse violent hazing, I mean, I think hazing is something that definitely still goes on, even though it is, like you said, illegal in 44 states, and the powers that be 
absolutely, you know, publicly say that it should not happen. But there is the, the fact that it's still persistent. There are questions as to whether or not other fraternities should also follow in SAE's footsteps in banning pledging altogether, because that's the period of time. Pledging is when they initiate new members. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps if you get rid of pledge and make it less exclusionary, Mm -hmm. then maybe you could make it a safer environment for guys to join. And then you could actually have more focus on the kind of ideals that fraternities ostensibly uphold, such as being a good citizen, being a gentleman, being a good guy, being a successful you know, scholar and member of the world at large. But there's usually a lot of resistance to that. Mm-hmm. And drinking and hazing are not the only potential downsides to what happens when you are exclusionary and keep a lot of things happening behind closed doors and in secret. So, yeah, I mean, speaking of being exclusive and exclusionary, there's a fascinating discussion that goes on in Nicholas Syrett's book about that very topic and the fact that this exclusionary attitude and behavior focuses and centers around masculinity. And, and you know, as we've talked about before on the podcast, you know, issues of and ideas and ideals of masculinity have definitely changed over the centuries. What it means to be a good friend has changed how you exhibit your masculinity. But what hasn't changed is that in a group like a fraternity, you're sort of apart from the quote unquote other. And you're trying very hard, typically in this situation, to exhibit your masculinity and prove yourself to be a true guy. And so When you have things that are occurring in society, like the women's movement, like gay rights movements, you have the standards of masculinity changing to kind of respond to that. So if, you know, women are gaining more rights, well, women are women and I'm a real man. And if if gay people are gaining more rights, well, uh, uh, that's, you know, gay people are, are not real men either. So there's really interesting discussions going on about masculinity and exclusion and who is being excluded. Yeah, and this is something that Syrett traces back to the 1920s when you start to see more of the rise of homophobia at the same time to uh, the rise of women's rights. And one quote from his book that jumped out was, quote, fraternal manliness originated around class status, had begun to encompass whiteness and Protestantism by the turn of the century, and by the post-World War II period were anchored in the performance of an aggressive heterosexuality. And so Syrett posits that it is that pursuit of, quote, aggressive heterosexuality, which is where we see in fraternities uh, traditions of homophobia, because if you're living in a house in close quarters with all these dudes, mm-hmm. well, you, you need to prove that you're not gay. Right. And also from there too, issues that fraternities that have had with sexual assault. Right. So first let's talk about homophobia, because this is an area where things have stayed the same, but things have also gotten better in terms of LGBT inclusion. 
1986, for instance, Delta Lambda Phi became the first national social fraternity for gay, bisexual, and straight progressive men. And then in 1999, you have Alpha Lambda Tau becoming the second. Right. And in between there, in 1995, the Lambda 10 Project National Clearinghouse for Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Fraternity and Sorority Issues was founded. Um, and the experience of gay Greeks basically depends on the organization. And typically it has been easier, they say, to rush as like a closeted person and then gradually come out once you've made these relationships. Um, and this is coming from a, a great article over at campuspride.org by Shane L. Winmeyer and George Miller. And they sort of talk about how in more mainstream or legacy fraternities like, say, a Kappa Alpha, um, it's perhaps getting better and more inclusive for openly gay guys to want to rush, but it's still nonetheless a liability if you want to guarantee your chances or improve at least your chances of getting in, then you might not want to let everybody know that you are gay. Um, and he, they write that less than 10% of fraternities have added non-discrimination in their bylaws, essentially saying, hey, we're not going to not consider you for membership if we know that you're gay. Um, but one positive anecdote from this, uh, friends of mine who actually just got married a couple months ago, two guys uh, met at their college fraternity. Oh, I think, I mean, I think they were like both open and out at the yeah. time, but I think they were just also at a, like a more progressive college, obviously in a more progressive fraternity. That's yeah. That's what, that was my next question. Like, did they go to school at like a big Southern, like big Southern school with a big Greek system or did they go to more progressive? They were in uh, like Northeast. Yeah. So more, more progressive. Absolutely. Um, but this issue too of homophobia is something that has been talked about a lot lately by scholars looking more specifically at black Greek letter organizations. Um, it being gay is something that is rarely discussed. Uh, Gregory S. Park, Wake Forest law professor writing about this says, um, he talks about how influences of masculinity constructs and stereotyping has really forced any semblance of being gay into the closet, particularly in black fraternities, even more so, some think, than white fraternities. Hmm, interesting. Well, I mean, speaking of uh, black fraternities and other issues that a lot of fraternities uh, grapple with, Rashawn Ray, in his book, Sophisticated Practitioners, Black Fraternity Men's Treatment of Women, points out that black fraternity men typically tend to treat women more respectfully than white fraternity men and other black men. Why, he says? He says it's due to the socialization process that black fraternity men normally undergo to be members of that organization. So what's up with that? Yeah, um, and Ray's also one who's looked into that issue of homophobia in uh, black fraternities as well. And he refers to their treatment towards women as um, being sophisticated practitioners. So in a sense, they are balancing a higher accountability that they are held to while still leveraging their fraternity status to achieve sexual goals. So he references a 2010 study um, which concluded that due to the small size of the black community, particularly at predominantly white institutions, 
they hold black fraternity men more accountable for their treatment of women in a way that the larger white community does not for white fraternity men. And there is a lot in the socialization process of black fraternity men. There is and has historically been a lot of focus on being exemplary members of their community because they are well aware of the fact that a lot of stereotypes exist regarding how black men particularly treat white women, for instance, a lot of racist undertones to how society sees them at large in that way. And so it's like they are they're aware of the fact that anything that they do to feed into that stereotype will only harm the community at large. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, they tend to be more respectful of women, even when it comes to just their dating approach. They are likelier to take a romantic dating approach if they want to go out with women compared to just a straight up sexual approach. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of a sexual approach, Nicholas Syrett talks a lot about this in his book as well, talking about how traditional white fraternity culture sort of facilitates and almost encourages sexually aggressive and misogynistic behavior. And this includes sexual assault. Yeah, this was a part of the podcast that I was least looking forward to getting to because and it's, I'm sure, no surprise whatsoever to anyone listening because it's talked about so much now. Uh, I feel like any time we get to this time of year when there is pledging happening. You have the first big parties of the year on college campuses and almost inevitably there are sexual assault allegations that come out um, of, of things happening, particularly at fraternity houses. And we are not trying to assert that all fraternity members are simply, you know, just rapists in waiting, but rather that it is issues of the fraternity culture and environment mm-hmm. and the, the way that activities at fraternity houses sometimes, and this is also not all fraternities, obviously, but sometimes flout the rules of conduct that, like you said, almost encourage these kinds of things to happen. Yeah, and it's it's what we've mentioned, it's that active heterosexuality that almost like reactive masculinity about reacting to women, reacting to gays on campus and being like, no, we are we are other than that. We are different. We're men, you know, we have to prove our masculinity somehow. And so then that just includes when you're in a house full of dudes, not only are you trying to prove that you're not gay because you live with a bunch of guys, but you're trying to make all these sexual conquests to prove how straight you are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also issues with the status and privilege that is conferred upon fraternity members, because even still, I think, at least in um, the context of larger college campuses where Fraternity guys, in the same way with, you know, women who are members of sororities, do tend to come from more privileged and affluent backgrounds. You know, they have enjoyed levels of socioeconomic privilege for a while. And I think that that kind of combines with a fraternity atmosphere that um, that just, again, sort of sets up this dangerous mm-hmm. environment. And there are study after study after study talks about this. And we'll get into those study findings in just a second. But I just remember being in college and how anytime a like Caroline and I both worked at our student newspaper and almost any time 
a young woman went to the campus police to specifically report a rape that happened at a fraternity house. The immediate response from the Greek community was to band together and blame her. And it was it was just so it was always so disheartening and so toxic to see. Yeah, I mean, it's it's rape culture at work right there as far as blaming the victim for being in the wrong place at the wrong time and not staying sober enough or not staying vigilant enough when really we should be talking about not raping instead of not being raped. Yeah. So just for a few study findings, I mean, we could go from 1980 all the way up into the 2000s. There has been so much research done on this. Um, one startling statistic found that between 1980 and 1990, frat members committed 55% of gang rapes reported on college campuses. There have also been a number of study findings that fraternity members tend to have more rape-supportive attitudes and tend to be more sexually coercive. Right, and that ties in with 1999 study findings that fraternity men believe that, or are more likely to believe that women enjoy being physically roughed up. They are more likely to believe that women secretly want to be raped. And for a more recent statistic, there is a 2001 report by the National Institute of Justice, which found that about 10% of sexual assaults reported on college campuses take place in fraternity houses. Um, so, and, and we could honestly go on and on and on. And there are now a lot of college administrators wondering, well, okay, should we just shut down the fraternity system? A lot of times that seems like an impossible option because fraternities, even though they are not affiliated directly with uh, the universities or colleges, they are massively powerful in terms of donor money. Well, what I found so interesting in Cyrus' book was a discussion of those colleges. And there are a bunch of articles about this, too, about colleges that have banned fraternities and sororities and the effect that that had. And that the actual once the college made the decision to do it, the actual um, lashing out and an anger that was expressed by these organizations was really kind of relatively short-lived. And they quoted former vice president for development at Colby, and Colby is a school that got rid of the, the Greek system. He said, life is much better. Women can go wherever they want to go. The social life at Colby is much healthier than it used to be. And I, I thought that was a really interesting um, note that he made. And when I read the comments on that article... Obviously, I won't quote them because some of them are rather ugly. But the general feeling among them was, hey, guys, live and let live. Why can't you let us have our fraternities and sororities? And then you go about doing whatever you want to do. Nobody said you have to join them. Just let us have our thing. And my reaction to that, my gut reaction to that was like, how how a lot of these people are not being able to put themselves in other people's shoes. The fact that oftentimes you have this exclusionary lifestyle that's based on this active heterosexuality and this active masculinity and that those people then go out and end up in positions of power in society. Um, it just made me think that it's so easy for a lot of times in any situation, not just talking about fraternities, but how easy it is for guys to forget to put themselves in the shoes of others, whether the other is a woman, a gay person, a black person, or maybe that they're just not willing to do that. And so they, these commenters were talking a lot about how um, their lifestyle was being affected. But when that lifestyle centers on drinking, 
and that drinking can lead to violence and that violence can lead to sexual assault. I'm just wondering, like, is the lifestyle worth having at the expense of your peers? But I don't think that the solution is to just shut down fraternities because there are at least, again, speaking anecdotally in college, there were just as many women who stood up for their fraternity brothers to slut shame and victim blame Mm -hmm. women who would come forward. There is as much, you know, problematic drinking that's also happening in other people's houses and in other settings. It's almost though that fraternity houses can become this incubator when allowed to. Mm -hmm. And, I just wonder what it is, because it seems like there's always in stories like this, there's always like a problematic house. It's not the entire Greek system. It's specifically one house on campus, like the case. There was this horrifying case at Wesleyan where there was this one off campus fraternity house that wasn't even sanctioned by the school where there were two separate incidents of sexual assaults being reported. And there was something about that house and what was going on in there. And it's like you have to, it's deeper. I feel like this issue is so much deeper than just burning Kappa Alpha to the ground, but rather looking at what is going on in those problem houses. Mm -hmm. Because I just don't... It's not, I I don't know, I feel like it's almost too easy to say, well, just shut everything down. Because we're 18 years old, and we're going to find a way to, like, get together and revolt against authority and drink. We've been doing it since 1776 at college. Yes, and they will continue to, kids in general, kids, kids, kids. will will continue to to be riffraff and drink and and be irresponsible about certain things. But the fact is, so many of these college presidents or VPs of administration, et cetera, et cetera, and, and women that were interviewed in these articles were like, you would not believe how better, how much better the culture is on campus. The yeah. overall culture, not just talking about sexual harassment or anything like that. You're a woman, you can't even walk past this house because you'll get catcalled and have obscene things screamed at you, but just an overall culture that is maybe more one of acceptance overall once the Greek system is either marginalized and minimized or done away with. Well, and it's, I mean, it's unfortunate too, because there are upsides, as we've mentioned, to Greek affiliations. I mean, Greek affiliated students tend to have higher graduation rates. They tend to be generous donors, which can then possibly improve schools. Um, you know, they, it is a powerful network professionally for not just fraternity members, but also sorority members. Um, and, I mean, I just I'm really curious to hear from people listening who have been in fraternities and or sororities on this, because I feel like any time this comes up, there's always a counter argument of that's just a couple of, you know, rotten apples in the barrel. We can't there. There are so many there's so many good things about this to outweigh the bad things. So I wonder from an inside perspective then, because neither you or I were in a sorority, mm-hmm. nor were we in a fraternity. I was. Although, well, you were in a co-ed honor fraternity, not the yeah. same thing. <laughs> Although I have been, I, I, I've been in fraternity houses. Oh, yeah. I was in fraternity houses in my college career. And I would like to know from an inside perspective, how do you how do you leverage those two things? And I, cause it can't, the excuse of just, oh, it's a couple of bad apples. 
isn't flying anymore. It's yeah. like, no, really, how how do you, could, I mean, do you just continue to make excuses for it? Or can you acknowledge the fact that something happens, something goes terribly wrong in certain houses sometimes, and it continues to? And why why isn't it stopped? Why aren't there better examples? Why aren't guys stopping other guys from this kind of behavior? Yeah, it's like the whole the whole discussion that you and I have talked about before of, saying boys will be boys, but on a massive scale, massive nationwide, college-wide scale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this definitely, it ha- certainly ties in with drinking. Um, it's a tough one. Honestly. It is a tough one. Yeah. I mean, my, my brother and my father and so many men in my family before them were uh, in fraternities and really, really loved the experience. But I have a feeling that my brother at the University of Georgia in a fraternity had a different experience than my great, 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 great uncle at Dartmouth. Yeah. Well, he was probably not riding by candlelight. And, uh, my, yeah, and, and my great uncle George had a mustache, fancy mustache. I want to see that mustache. He's, he's yes, snapping, sm- a smashing young man. Well, at this point, we want to turn it over to you listeners. We really want to hear from you on this issue because it's something that is talked about so often in the media. It is an issue that by no means is going away anytime soon. And absolutely, if you're a college student or if you are an alumnus of a Greek organization, we especially want to hear from you on this. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send us your letters. You can also message us on Facebook or tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Peter in response to our Women in Tennis episode, during which we discussed the issue of grunting, to which Peter says, no. He says, speaking as a fan and a player, grunting by either sex is just plain annoying and distracting. I would totally be in favor of a loosely enforced outright ban on continuous rally grunting, my terminology, nothing official. I understand that here and there people let one fly after a long rally, a big stretch shot out of frustration, but it is completely unnecessary to grunt over and over and over after all shots. That was in all caps, by the way. Get two grunters together and OMG! You might say, you did, who cares? Well, I do. If I turn a match on TV and I hear too much grunting, I turn it off. It distracts me from everything I enjoy, from the fast footwork and positioning to that beautiful ball placement. Generally speaking, it is the ladies who grunt more in my watching. As a result, I tend to watch more men's tennis. If you would like, I could now do my impersonation of a Celis Sabatini match circa 93. It is the first instance of incessant grunting I recall, and it has burned into my mind. I am all for women playing five sets, equal paychecks for both sexes, and for all men, women, transgender people, exceptionally skilled chimps with rackets, everyone, to chill out on the grunting. All right. So That's thanks. how you really feel. Yeah, Peter, <laughs> Peter is not a fan of the grunting, so thank you for that letter. I still think grunting helps me on the court. And if you ever see a game of chimpanzees playing tennis, let me know, because I need to see that. They're probably more coordinated than I am. Well, I have a letter here from Megan, and it is a podcast topic request. 
that I wanted to read to the, the Sminty community at large to see if you all would like to hear this podcast. She writes, amidst all this hubbub about the Supreme Court decision on Monday, she's referring to the <laughs> Hobby Lobby birth control court case. She says, I got a chance to read some of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's response to it, and it struck me that I'm pretty sure you've never done a podcast about her. You are correct, Megan. I think there's a lot to say about her, so here I am requesting it. So, folks, would you like to hear an episode on the Notorious RBG? Let us know. You can uh, you can just tweet us or something, Mom, at Mom Stuff Podcast for that one. Just, sh- just shoot us a little note. And if folks want to hear about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, then... By all means, we will talk about her. And if you have podcast requests to send our way or have feedback on fraternities and sororities and all that jazz, you can email us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where your letters can go. You can also tweet us again at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And for links to all of our social media as well as podcasts, which include our sources so you can follow along, and for all of our blogs and videos, there's one place to go, and it's stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 